It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach, show number 95, March 2009. This week I spoke with Jacob Harris, senior software architect in the Interactive Newsroom Technology Group at the New York Times. He develops Rails applications for things ranging all the way from election results to congressional votes to the Super Bowl. He's also going to be at South by Southwest this weekend. If you're there, check out his panel on developing APIs and the changing face of news. Yeah, so I work in the Interactive Newsroom Technologies group uh, here at the New York Times. And uh, what this is is a small team of about 10 developers uh, and a few web designers, um, all of whom are either uh, programmers with journalistic uh, aspirations or journalists with... uh, programming aspirations, uh, that works in Ruby on Rails and works on small news-driven applications, generally. It's sort of to give you an idea of the type of stuff we've done. Um, It could be anything from when breaking news happens, putting that data online in a way that people can browse it interactively as opposed to just reporting on it. So when the list of people who had claims against Bernie Madoff was released, we put that online in about three hours so people could browse and search it directly rather than just read our story on it. Or when Hillary Clinton released her travel schedules while she was at the White House um, during the campaign next year, uh, last year we uh, released that too. But generally, a lot of our work also involves, you know, around actual scheduled news stories, either events like the Olympics or elections or the Oscars or, um, you know, sporting events like March Madness or the NFL playoffs or, you know, if there are long-term, I mean, uh, investigative stories. There are a few times that we've done applications with that. And our newest interest is also better tools for browsing the website and finding data from it, as well as just supporting on long-term data collection efforts, both inside the newspaper and outside of it. So we work traditionally with the, uh, a few other groups here at the newspaper, um, one of which computers is reporting and is long focused on creating databases and gathering data that's used to support reporters. You know, I mean, the journalism inside the paper, but you know, it was, the concept was that it would be very useful to share this data with the outside world, too. Another group that we work very closely with is the graphics department, which does all those really nice visualizations that you see on the New York Times website, as well as various other print and web graphics located around NewYorkTimes.com. And a final group we work with is a multimedia group that has done a lot of work on slideshows and more... Uh, in-depth uh, flash applications. And so the Interactive Newsroom Technologies group was born out of this uh, sort of a coalition of these various departments as well as interested people, NewYorkTimes.com, the digital side of the operations. And uh, essentially about, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, the bridge collapsed in Minnesota. The, that morning... Every newspaper in the country had a database of bridge inspection data across the country that they could put online, and various papers did, but the New York Times didn't because we didn't have the technical capability to rapidly create newsroom applications, news-driven applications like that. We had, you know, there were processes for doing large components of the website as well, so there was the day-to-day operations for publishing out print stories, you know, I mean, basically for taking stories and publishing through the CMS, but there was no 
group dedicated to developing interactive news applications. And this is how the Interactive Newsroom Technologies uh, group was created. Is We've been kicking around the idea, and we got the go-ahead to form it about a year ago. It was me, some people from graphics, from computer system reporting, and a few other developers. And since then, we've grown to 10 developers and done a whole wide range of applications. Now, a lot of what you do really changes people's ideas of what a newspaper is and takes advantage of of what we can do with web browsers and the and the internet. You mentioned a few of those, you know, that one word to describe your feelings on election day, almost kind of a, a mini Twitter election results, congressional votes, reader submitted photos photos from the inauguration. How long do you usually spend on each of these projects? Uh, because they do seem to be very time sensitive. We're we're an agile shop, and I, I mean that in a lowercase agile way, not in a formal agile way. Though we do have daily scrums and uh, you know a few other uh, things to sort of make sure that we're all coordinated. But it usually takes about a month for us to get one of these applications from initial wireframe or concept to finish, um, and that sort of is one of the uh, hallmarks of our group is that we occupy that niche between the. Uh, day-to-day, like, daily turnover operations of the regular newspaper where they have to get stuff either in a a day or a few days tops, you know, versus the long-term product development uh, that, you know, most of NewYorkTimes.com works on, which is things like Times People or, you know, a new site for movies or a new site for health. And so we've managed to find a lot of interesting projects that, you know, take about a you know, are very news-directed, news-oriented, and that we can turn around relatively quickly, but still, you know, provide a lot of interesting value. And from a Rails perspective, do these usually end up just being a, a fresh new Rails application for each type of project, or are they wrapped into a more of a meta project? We generally just fire off, uh, create a new Rails application for each project. Um, you know, we've, uh, you know, very interested in looking at templates in Rails 2.3 or, you know, I mean, we sort of had some sort of, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it a suspenders project where we would actually take certain plugins that we install, you know, in many of our applications. Um, but usually we just make every um, application is is uh, different. Now, that said, there are a few applications that started off as specific Rails applications that are then we've now extracted and expanded them into um, tools in their own right. And so... Um, there's this one application called the Document Viewer, which was created to uh, last year when Hillary Clinton um, released her travel schedules, I mean her White House schedules um, during the campaign. You know, it was sort of one of her uh, things that she did for trans- in the name of transparency. And we got that online so people could browse all 17,000 pages and search them. And we found that was a really useful viewer to have. And so we actually have um, since then uh, various people in the group have worked on expanding its functionality um, so that it's become an uh, application we can roll multiple documents into and allow editors to annotate them, you know, release them, reorder them. And the goal is eventually to open source it at some point this year um, once we uh, find the spare time to get it ready for release. But, yeah, generally it's usually every uh, every. You know, it's not really one size fits all, but every application has its own its own Rails project. As you mentioned already, kind of a combination, sometimes flash driven, sometimes just pure HTML, JavaScript, even looks like some little server generated graphics. For example, for the Super Bowl, you had a table with 
a small graphic of kind of the range of the Cardinals and, and uh, Steelers as far as where they fit within the NFL on defense or offense or, or tackles or or yards run. How do you put? How do you choose the what the uh, result is going to be as far as whether it's Flash, whether it's HTML or server generated graphics? We um, I mean, we actually tend to try to. I mean, there are things that I think that we all recognize. There are things that Flash does very well. And there are things that web stuff does very well. I mean, it used to be the trend among when things were overly, uh, I mean, there used to be, everyone has their sort of flash horror sites where they look at like a site and everything is just embedded in a one giant flash app, like all the navigation, reading stuff, and you can't really cut and paste, you know, copy text and stuff like that. And we try to steer clear of that. I mean, I joke sometimes in a curmudgeon way that flash is the anti-web. Once you put something inside flash, it pretty much disappears from google it's not really hyperlinkable and it's not really useful ultimately to the end users but we are certain things that flash is very good we use it for maps we use it for very tight graphics that we need to control if we have any sort of interactive elements that you know potentially like are complicated like for march madness or the nfl bracket challenge we have flash elements for um, filling out brackets but in general, where we can, we try to go web, you know, with web elements just because it makes it easier for search engines, it makes it easier for users, and it, you know, it, it's actually a shorter development time in many cases um, when you're doing, like, certain things to do them in web rather than Flash. And so it's very easy to lay out a table in HTML, but it's very difficult to lay it out in Flash, or it's kind of using Flash for a poor, poor way of doing it. And, I mean, sometimes... We actually are lucky enough to have an extremely talented few designers in our group who know JavaScript and DHTML very well. And so things like the document viewer, it's a document thing you can go through page by page. And a lot of people assume it's Flash, but it's actually all JavaScript and DT, you know, DHTML, where it's retrieving individual page images from the CDN and allowing you to paginate through. But there is no Flash anywhere on that, on that page. So we try to when we can, but there are also very rich uh, interactive experiences that are enabled by Flash. Too. Yeah, it definitely seems like some of the interactive maps make much more sense uh, in Flash, whereas, although I guess maybe at some, in some day those could be done in JavaScript or the canvas tag or something when that's more readily available. Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean to give you an idea, I mean, the election was a very sort of instructive thing to me in that you know, I'm, I tend to be a sort of non-flashy person. Um, and I was very happy that for election results, we were able to provide both data and tabular form as HTML pages. We called that the, we actually called that the big board, um, kind of like, I guess, which is a sly, uh, like a reference to like the big board in uh, Dr. Strangelove or something, and as well as the maps. But I have to admit, like the map stuff does actually enrich, you know, a ways more than seeing like a county by county listing of results actually go in be able to zoom in on the map is very compelling. And so there are ways in which, you know, Flash really enriches the whole experience. And when the graphics guys say that we need to use Flash, I listen because they know where it makes sense and where it doesn't. Now, I was fascinated to think about the whole scaling issue. For many people, they'll write an app, they'll do a slow rollout, a beta test over a couple of months and add more users and scale up the servers. And finally, they feel like they're going full steam. But you don't have that luxury Often these sites are launched for a specific event, specific date and time, and gets 
probably the majority of their traffic right away, which I assume then scales yeah. off later. How do you prepare an app, a brand new app to, to scale well and, and to be able to handle the kinds of traffic that visit NewYorkTimes.com? Yeah, I think the the funny thing about some of the stuff we do is that, you know, uh, we uh, and so there have been some cases where we actually have no idea at all what the traffic levels are going to be. I mean, for election night, we had no idea what the traffic would be. I mean, we had no, we could kind of guess, but, you know, it would just be a wild guess. And there are certain other events where you kind of know you're going to get a lot of traffic for them because they're newsworthy, like the Olympics or Oscar night or things like that. And you have to deliver because, you know, well, it's embarrassing if you don't. Uh, and so there are certain strategies that we've sort of adopted to help us with, you know, scaling rails. You know, first of which, I mean, when we first launched, we were very conservative with rails and scaling, um, not because rails is inherently slow or unscalable, but, you know, my general philosophy is if you have a, um, Anytime that every request hits the database, you're generally, I just feel like that's a recipe for getting screwed. And so for things like election night, we actually had the uh, luxury in that all the election night graphics were interactive. It was more a situation that we were publishing out data and pages and stuff, and the interaction was all taking place in Flash on the client's computer. And so for certain apps, we've actually just what we've done, a process we call baking out, where we just... Um, we use Rails to render the page or the sub, you know, the subcomponent like a little panel or you know the map data, and then we uh, capture that rendered page and publish it out to our content delivery network, um, the CDN, which then is what's is, was uh, you know what the user sees when they retrieve the page, and so what the user sees is just a static page served on a CDN, and so it's really fast. But for us, what we still have is we still have the ability to dynamically and, you know, sort of develop these apps, you know, in an agile fashion, you know, very quickly and then, you know, bake them out like that. And that's work for certain, you know, apps that we can publish out. And we have certain other apps that we have variations where we have an internal administration, you know, interface that then we publish, you know, that is editorially uh, controlled and publishes out to a server as well, but you know, as we've gotten more sophisticated, we've moved to situations where we have interactive apps that allow people to do things like make their own Oscar ballots or pick their own NCAA brackets that actually involve interactive capabilities. And um, there, we've discovered that Rails's caching is, is, is you know obviously necessary, and we've also discovered the joys of using Amazon EC2 because um, you know it's for those of you who are not familiar with it. At this point, though, I'm not sure who is not familiar with EC2. Um, you know, it basically allows you to spin up servers on demand, and then when you no longer need them, to put them, you know, to spin them back down again. And so we're able to do it with like a news-driven thing where we know it's going to be big, or we it is does become big, is that we can spin up as many servers as we need for like so for Oscar now you can run you know whatever five, ten, whatever. You probably don't need that many servers, or for Election night, you can spin up additional servers just to handle that traffic, that particular Rails app. And then as a news story dies down, you can migrate the application to a shared server and then spin down your dedicated servers for the application because you no longer need them. And it's so easy to bring stuff up and and uh, you know, spin it down again. It becomes a really good way of sort of scaling without really worrying about you know having to requisition your servers in advance and uh, set them up and all that. 
you're also yeah. using Fusion Passenger, which is, I mean, it's impressive that that thing has come along as far as it has in only a little over a year and being used to scale uh, sections of sites like the New York Times. How, do you, how are you using Passenger? We've been we've been very strong, uh, big fans of Passenger from the get go, and we actually use it on all of our uh, all of our servers at this point, uh, mainly because uh, uh, we had to deal. I mean, again, the news issue is sort of a uh, uh, I mean, the sort of the variable load of news applications where they're sort of very popular at first and then no longer as popular. We didn't really want to keep reapportioning our mongrels based on traffic and didn't really feel like using some of the third-party tools for spinning up and shutting down Mongrel. And so um, Pasture was appealing because it was very easy to configure so anyone can handle it, including like a uh, including uh, Sysadmin, who's necessarily not the most familiar with you know all of Ruby's tools, and it's 3 in the morning and they're tired and just want to fix the server. Um, and it also works really well for us in that we have um, shared servers, for instance, that which is kind of where our news applications are retired to, where there may not be anything running if no one's requesting them, as opposed to a dedicated, at least you know, a dedicated mongrel. And so we could have twenty applications or thirty, you know. And then if someone comes in to visit it, you can passenger can handle it, and then it can, when traffic dies down, it can free up those resources. And so it's a lot easier for us to maintain than having to sort of deal with. You know, mongrel has its place. If I were working on a site that. You know, I mean, the nice thing about mongrels, it's very low latency to request. There's no spinning up new mongrels. They're there, and there are definitely places that it's worth for us. But for us, uh, the actual uh, ease of administration, especially as we build more and more applications, uh, trumps the the, uh, latency and speed optimizations that you could get with a uh, well-tuned mongrel stack. That's impressive, because often people think of scaling just on a high end, handling hundreds of requests per second, but also on the low end, applications that may not see a lot of traffic and, and can yet still be there and be available for people. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, I mean, we, we do try to scale on the high end. I mean, you know, we have had to and we continue to work on that. But, you know, I think for us, as, as you know, we also have the concern of, and in some essence, we're like a small uh, startup or a design shop inside the New York Times, but we're creating many, many applications, you know, because usually every new project you work on has its own sort of custom needs and custom uh, requirements that you can't really just, you know, use a one-size-fits-all solution like a blog or a CMS. Or, uh, so you find up creating like your own app. And so for us, the complexity of maintaining and making sure that all those apps remain available without necessarily consuming resources or being a headache for us to... Because we largely, you know, administer our own servers, is also an important scaling consideration. And Passenger is just as hands down made that a lot easier to handle. Now, I want to ask you about two other things with uh, open.nytimes.com. One is DB Slayer JSON over HTTP for databases, enabling you to to scale those separately from web servers and access those with a, a variety of different languages or tools. How did that come about, and what, what's is it DBS Slayer or DB Slayer? Yeah, that's actually one of the first uh, open source. Uh, well, it's actually the first open source project um, that was released from the New York Times. It predates the APIs and even the uh, all the other things in our open initiative. Um, the name uh, DB Slayer is a bit of an inside joke uh, that became real, and that it was called internally. The tool was called the DB Access Layer, and it was created by. Uh, 
very talented programmer, also aired the New York Times named Derek Gottfried. And we just shortened it to DB Slayer because it just sounded very heavy metal. You know, we had all these internal uh, logos that involved like guitars and lightning bolts and things like that. And then when we decided to open source it, uh, you know, we, the name just seemed appropriate. Basically, the uh, the reason DB Slayer came about is that a very common scaling technique used when you actually have to deal with a uh, uh, database, especially as you get large user bases, is sharding. Um, and that's, you know, the ability to have, like, uh, you split up your multi-million, or you have a, a table of millions or billions of users, and you split up across multiple database servers, so you can then, like, and reassemble the data by firing off multiple queries against multiple databases. Uh, the idea of DB Slayer is that it is possible to do things at things like MySQL. I think there's actually a program called MySQL Proxy, but it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do to understand because it involves a lot of, well, it basically involves compiling a lot of binary um, applications and working with cutting-edge uh, developer tools that are, you know, writing on the custom MySQL binary protocol. And in general, I think MySQL proxy, I don't know if it handles the sharding case yet or not. And so around two years ago, uh, basically Derek, I mean, we sort of had the feeling that Derek was developing that, you know, the web has become better or worse, the uh, lingua franca of the internet. I mean, there are all these tools, they're both um, that, uh, can you know speak HTTP, and the best way to take a database is actually wrap it in a web server and uh, access it that way. And so, what DB Slayer allows you to do is it allows you to set up a DB Slayer proxy to one or more databases, database servers um, that can handle that listens on port eighty, or you can actually it listens on probably another port, but it's a web server in all intents and purposes that takes SQL queries in and returns. Uh, uh, SQL as JSON back. And the power of this is that when you have a massively sharded you know, situation where maybe you're retrieving data from 20 applications, you can, I mean, from 20 databases, you can um, use uh, uh, you know, powerful tools like curl has this ability, uh, this uh, functionality called multi-get, which allows you to dispatch multiple web queries in parallel. And then it basically, so you basically, it takes as long it doesn't. You don't. When you're hitting twenty databases, it only takes as long as it, the longest database request does. It doesn't. It's not twenty in serial. Serial. And so DB Slayer was built so that you could just use curl multi get to hit twenty databases in parallel. Um, similarly, there's all sorts of tools that you can put on the front end. Like you could use Varnish, any sort of caching layer, stuff like that. It provides an abstraction layer between the applications and loading scripts and the backend databases they operate on. And the main joy is that you can create adapters in any language that can handle JSON and web access, you know, web requests, which is pretty much any language you want. And so um, I wrote an uh, active record adapter for DB Slayer in about a few days. It's on GitHub if you want to find it, fork it. But it really took me about two days of work because, you know, in Ruby I know how to make web requests. And really all I had to do figure out was how do I... Uh, how do I actually, you know, work with how do how are active record adapters constructed was actually the hardest work. And similarly, some other developer turned around and created a data mapper adapter. And, you know, we have adapters in PHP and Python and stuff like that. Um, so it's, this is a very interesting project that we like to encourage people to build on and uh, work with, you know, because it, became, it creates a nice layer of scalability between the web applications and the databases they hit. 
and potentially for the future, having that kind of internal layer seems like it would give the flexibility for somebody to write a an adapter to point to Postgres or, or other kinds of databases. Yeah, well. it's definitely, I think there are certain products. I think Derek's been a bit sidetracked on a few other projects himself. Um, though, you know, I'll have to ask him, but I mean, I didn't think definitely like Postgres would be a, uh, an option. The other option would be to actually allow like certain things, like you could actually put like small scripting layer inside DB Slayer. So I know my SQL proxy has the ability to have run Lua scripts you know, on some of the data or do some sort of data transformation. There's definitely fun things you could do when you inject in there. You could also put additional layers of authentication or access control or something, but, you know, inside that that thing that you don't necessarily get with the database server. So it's it's a, it's a sort of a fun exercise in let's turn a proprietary kind of, well, not really proprietary, but a sort of obscure protocol and, in, in, you know, and in, in sort of open it up into an open ASCII-based protocol or whatever, and just see sort of the uh, tools that you can develop around it. Now, another thing, a final thing, the APIs that have been published by the New York Times over the last couple of years, you said that that's really important as far as getting information out, having people reuse that. It's, It's not that people always need to just come to the New York Times. You want them to be, yeah. to be reusing that data and, and making useful things out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the API strategy of which um, we actually, uh, it's a strategy that's been taken on by various departments around the New York Times, not just our group has contributed a few APIs, but there are multiple departments working on is, is I feel it's essential to uh, success of the New York Times in the future. Um, you know, quite frankly, I mean, the days in which, you know, you could sort of think of the newspaper or any sort of large media provider as being a walled garden, um, what people come to and, you know, spend all their time on. I think those days are long gone. And we need to actually you know, make it easier for people to do interesting things with their data and mix, you know, our content around, the, you know, around the web. We want to be a part of the web, not, you know, apart from the web. And so, I mean, the API strategy is essential to that. And we really want to encourage people to use our APIs in various ways. And if you haven't, I encourage checking out uh, open.blogs at nytimes.com, which is our blog on, on our open source initiatives, as well as developer at nytimes, where you can see the various APIs we have available right now. And you know, even at this moment, we've seen some really interesting projects. There's a uh, someone has been creating these nice uh, artistic interpretations of New York Times article data. Uh, the uh, instant viewer, uh, uh, there's a app, someone's created a mashup of the New York Times movie reviews API and the Netflix API allowing you to, you know, you can see what things you can view instantly on Netflix and find things that are New York Times critics picks and, you know, read the New York Times review right there. Saw so another app recently, which was written in uh, Ruby called MIT Explorer, which allowed you to actually uh, drill down and look at the New York Times news uh, in a sort of new faceted way that is not available on the website, but is available via the APIs. And these things just, you know, I find them all really thrilling, you know, and so I just want to see more and more development work and interesting work along there. And you'll be at South by Southwest this weekend, is that right? Yes, I will be at South by Southwest and uh, uh, talking about APIs and newspapers with a bunch of other panelists. Um, so if you find yourself there, uh, definitely uh, look me up. And in general, I mean, uh, you know, you can find me on pretty much on Twitter and a bunch of places. I'm Harris J. And even at the New York Times, you could I think you can email me at Harris J at NYTimes.com. 
you know, I'd love to sort of hear what people have interests and, uh, you know, what sort of things we can do to uh, both, you know, explain what we do and make it easier for people to work with our content. Awesome. Well, thanks for the conversation. Thank you for having me. Sponsored by Peep Code Screencasts. Our hottest seller yet has been last month's Objective-C for Rubyists, getting you up to speed for iPhone development. Also dropping in the next week will be Email Productivity with Lars Pinned and Pro Screencasting with Final Cut Pro. Hosting and bandwidth provided by Rails Machine.